Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Uh, today, I've got a really special guest. It's somebody who uh, falls in line a lot with my philosophies on leadership and, and some of the guests we've had on here as well. He's a very accomplished individual. Uh, Mr. Tim uh, Loopfer, has, uh, he, he grew up in uh, New Jersey, uh, graduated first in his class at West Point, uh, as if that wasn't enough, he decided uh, when he was uh, done with that to become a Rhodes Scholar and uh, studied in Oxford. Uh, he commanded a tank battalion in combat in Desert Storm. Uh, after that, he became a business executive, author, and speaker. Uh, currently, his book, Leadership Tough Love, Examining Leaders Through the Lens of Reality, is out there. I highly suggest that you go pick up a copy of that. Uh, but, you know, he, he has this philosophy where he thinks we're not developing leaders we need because we're not precise about what leadership actually is. Tim, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much, Earl. Yeah, well, and I really appreciate it. And let's just go ahead and segue off that last piece. I'm sure you were prepared for this question. What does the burden of command mean to you? Uh, yes, Earl, and, and thanks very much. I think I have two answers to that question. First, the burden of command is that your name is on the results. And that is definitely a burden. There are a lot of organizations where people try to point fingers to somebody else and evade all that good stuff. But the good organizations put the responsibility and the authority where it should be. And, and that's, and excuse me, that's command. And the second piece of that is, I think to be effective, in command, you have to have two tools. And those two tools are authority and the other one is influence. And so if it's okay, Earl, can I uh, sort of describe each of those a little bit? Oh, yes, please do. Well, command, excuse me, authority is the power of the position. And that is top down. That is bestowed by the organization. And a lot of times I see people thinking, oh, authority is kind of a bad word. and We shouldn't have to use it. And this is where I take a pretty strong stand. Now, authority is an extremely important tool. It's a very important tool for leadership because leaders in any situation need to invoke or use both influence and authority. Now, like I say, authority is top down, but that happens because we have hierarchies and hierarchies are necessary for us to do anything at scale. 
And so when you occupy a position, the organization gives you a certain amount of authority or power in that position, and you do need to use that. Now, the problem that we all know about with regard to authority is some people use it as a sledgehammer and use it all the time. But the most effective leaders I've seen use both authority and influence. Now, influence is the other side of the coin. Influence is the personal interaction that the leader has with his or her followers. And influence is more from the bottom up. It's organic. So you've got authority, which is top down, and you have influence, which is really organic or bottom up. Now, the influence that a leader uses, I divide into three basic parts. And of course, influence is pretty complicated, but I've tried to divide it into something pretty straightforward. First of all, there's a lot of unconscious or subconscious communications that go on between us humans. Does it matter or does it help if you're tall? Well, empirical evidence suggests yes, at least in the short term. Does it help if you have a really good appearance? Yes. Uh, so there are some things like that, and these are things we can work on, but they all, these all tend to work sort of under the radar. They're sort of the subconscious things that we respond to, but they're very important in terms of influence. The second piece of influence is a lot more straightforward and direct, and that's the communications that you do as the leader with the people you're leading. And that's the direct communication, which is always best if it's human to human, face to face, eyeball to eyeball. Um, it's very interesting. In our brains, we have more neurons dedicated to the visual than any other sense or any of the other senses combined. We are a visual species. And so that's very important in terms of influence when leaders react with their followers. The third piece of influence I call reputation. And that's the set of stories that a leader gathers as he or she develops as a leader. And these stories travel and uh, people are always asking about, well, who's the new person or I'm now working for so-and-so and they hear about the reputation. And so that's another piece of influence. Now, the interesting thing is a lot of times we can't control reputation. Uh, people certainly <laughs> work pretty hard to do that, but sometimes some stories can get out there. Sometimes they're true. Sometimes they may not be true, yeah. but that's all part of influence. What I want to conclude in this piece, Earl, is just to say I have never observed an effective leader that did not know how and when to use both authority and influence. In other words, the, the effective leader, and this would certainly be the effective commander, knows when each of those tools is appropriate and knows how to use them at those times. Oh, man, that, that is, <laughs> you see, you come out of the gate swinging and then you hit right in the wheelhouse there with, you know, what we do here. Because I like how you, you mentioned the first part of influence, some of those unconscious things. And, and uh, you know, I love, uh, I love the examples you use. And, and I know you studied history, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. So you, you probably have heard of uh, uh, what they call the, the Harding effect, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and for the listeners, you know, uh, we, we love to talk about whatever side of the fence you're on politically. Whoever the current president is, is always the worst president we've ever had in history. <laughs> but most political scholars would agree that, that Warren Harding was probably one of our worst. And when they look at, at how he got elected— 
one of the things that they found in the literature, uh, you know, the articles, uh, newspaper articles coming up to the election was everybody referred to his looks and his presence. He looked presidential. He looked like somebody you wanted leading. There was no talk about policies and what his stances were. It was all about this guy looks. He was tall. He was handsome. And, you know, by a lot of accounts, he got elected for a lot of those unconscious things that you talked about as the, the piece of influence. So I think people underestimate how powerful that really can be just because you look like you should be a leader. Now, that's a good point, Earl. And it's interesting about Harding. Um, as you know, he died on a trip to Alaska, mm-hmm. uh, which may mean presidents should never go to Alaska. I'm not sure. <laughs> but um you know, he died in office. And at first people said, oh, my gosh, he was just such a great guy. And let's build monuments. And then people sort of looked behind the curtain at what was going on. And they said, whoop, not, not so fast. So right. uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's really interesting how these things have, have turned out. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. And then you were talking about the, the information there. And again, just kind of fill in some data gaps for, for the listeners. You know, the popular theory is uh, we, we process about 11 million bits of information a second. And 10 million of those are, are visual, like what you were saying. And, uh, you know, that, that unconscious bias piece. So the way it goes, 11 million bits of information per second, but we can only consciously process 50 bits of that 11 mm-hmm. million bits. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, those unconscious bias pieces there, that dictates what 50 bits makes it through that filter. And, and if you have the looks, if you have the appearance, and if you have the the voice, those 50 bits take prominence. So, man, again, I, I love everything you said there about influence. That, that was some really powerful stuff, and I like how you tied that together. And especially the last piece. And, and, and I know my listeners have heard me talk about this before because – you know, I've talked about, uh, you know, King Leonidas and the, and the story about building the wall and how he listened to his commanders and he just goes over and he picks up the rock and he starts building the wall. Uh, and, and to me, that, that kind of highlights what you were getting at there. It's like this guy was a king. He could have just easily pointed his, uh, his sword and said, we're going to build the wall here, get to it. But he, he let that influence piece set in. He took in some information around him. And he didn't even, like, use his authority to give a command. He just got up and he started doing it, and everybody followed in because they realized, this is our king, the decision's been made. And right. so I like that. No, it is good, and I think that's a good example of where a, a very effective leader knows what's appropriate in each situation. Um, I think one of the things that happens with a lot of people today, especially I think younger people, is they're they're a little leery about this thing called authority. And I think sometimes people are a little bit hesitant to learn how to use it. And um, I hope people can understand, though, that authority, the power of the position that you're in, is very important. And you need to know how to use that as well. Um, but it it's what is appropriate at the given time. Mm-hmm. And I think Certainly, where authority is particularly important, and you have a military background, and so do I, there are some times where there's the urgency of time. Mm-hmm. And that's when a leader has to make a decision and you have to go with it. Um, and those are the times when there's something urgent, where there's something pressing by time. 
where the leader has to have the courage to use the authority and say, this is what we're going to do. Let's do it now. Right. Boom. Um, now, that's fortunately, we don't have that urgency in everything we do, especially in business. So once again, here's where the leader has to very carefully determine what's more effective. Um, and there are also times, as we all know, when we're dealing with people, because when we deal with human beings, things get complex. There are times people don't want to do something for whatever reason. And sometimes they do have to be pushed along by the power position to say, nope, this is what we're going to do. Uh, I one time knew a very effective leader in the army who one time said, these are my standards. And more importantly, these are these standards. I'm not asking for your approval. I just want your understanding because these are the standards. And so these are times when people also have to use authority, particularly in the case where you do have to change performance or change behavior. That's where authority is extremely important. And so once again, you've got to find that right mix of authority and influence. Yeah, well, and again, I love that. And you're right. I mean, all the best leaders I, I've worked for, one of the first conversations we had was about expectations. And and that is one of the things that I run into a lot working with leaders is, you know, they'll, they'll start with, you know, my team's not doing this. My team's not doing that. Do they know that that's what they're supposed to be doing? Have you set those expectations for them? Well, they should just know. No, they, they shouldn't <laughs> just know. That's why you're here, right? Well, that's true, Earl. And, and if I can, this leads to what I try to say are the three key elements of leadership. Okay. And uh, this is something, to be quite honest, I've been trying to figure out and work out since I was the age of 17 entering West Point in 1968. And that's a pretty long time ago now. And in observing a lot in the military and in business and doing a lot of research, um, I finally came upon these three elements. Are they perfect? Well, of course not. But I think they're pretty good in terms of a framework for looking at leadership. And these three elements are, first, giving direction. That's very important for leaders to do, and it ties in exactly with exactly what you were just saying. Um, people do need direction, and not just direction. They need to know where their efforts fit in in the bigger picture. And effective leaders know how to do that, and that's part of giving direction. The second piece is demonstrating capabilities. The leader has to demonstrate that he or she is capable in their job. Now, this doesn't mean that they can do everybody else's job. And in fact, we can't because life is too complicated. But in the position that the leader is, the leader must demonstrate capabilities because people don't like to follow incompetence. Mm. In fact, in most cases, they won't. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important for leaders to show that they have capability in the job that they're in. But the third thing is what I call the secret sauce, and that's embodying character. And character is that set of values that we pick up as we grow and mature, and they're the values we carry with us that determines our behavior. And uh, good character means that basically you're abiding by the shared values that are really shared by almost all groups of people throughout the world. And of course, fairness is one of the most important of those. 
And it's very important for the leader to show character. And I feel very strongly that's the secret sauce. That's the third element that really connects people emotionally. But Earl, if I could, here's the kicker, and it's a bit of a warning to good people. And that is do not think that just because you have character and you have such good intentions, that that alone will make you a successful leader. The point I try to make in my book is you've got to have the other two giving direction and demonstrating capabilities as the foundation that character will then rest on. And I've seen an awful lot of people, and I've had this problem myself, quite honestly, in a couple of situations where I was in a position you know, I really wanted to do the right job. I feel I have the right character, but I was being thrown in the deep end, didn't know how to swim in the given situation, and I floundered. And other people have come up to me and said the same thing. So I think it's very important for all of us when we are looking at a leadership position that we're going to get into, we've got to step back and say, look, am I capable in terms of the position I'm going to be in? Can I give the direction? Because when I can do those two things, then we're off to the right start. And then I can build on that by displaying or embodying character. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. You're, you're preaching to the choir here. And I especially like the, the demonstrate capabilities piece because that's, you know, that's one of the things where I see a lot of leaders. They, they get uh, the, 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 the Peter principle uh, they, they call it where they get promoted above their means. But the reason is not necessarily they got promoted because of their above their skills as doing something. It's because they got promoted above their skills in leadership. And, and those capabilities are, are still there. And sometimes they don't give it up, right? They're, they're still focused on doing the thing instead of making sure the thing gets done. But the, the one thing I like to stress on the capabilities piece uh, because in the Marines, you know, we we had uh, we had a principle referred to it as remaining technically and tactically proficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And whenever I'm talking about that, I like to to stress the proficient part. You don't have to be an expert. You just have to be able to get in there and do what needs to be done when it needs to be done to help out. And if there's somebody on your team that's better than you at that, don't let your ego get in the way and not be willing to learn from them. Because to, to me and in my experiences, you have the capabilities and the proficiency to do something serviceable. But if you're willing to learn and do something better, you generate a ton of that uh, relationship capital, as they call it. And now that person's more willing to learn and be led by you because you had some humility to, be, to learn and be led by them. No, and that's a good point, Earl. And I think the thing is, particularly as things get more complex, which of course they are all the time, it's very important for leaders, first of all, to have curiosity and constantly being trying to learn, uh, learn more broadly. I think it's very important for leaders to understand that as you ascend in an organization as a leader, you've got to become more of a generalist because you're going to have more different skills that are all coming together that you've got to direct. And as you pointed out, you, the leader, are not the expert in each of those given skills. That's why you have a group together 
to complement and reinforce each other. But you've got to have that curiosity and you've got to have that ability to understand where everything fits in so that you can direct things as a leader. Just as a quick story, one of the things I observed, this is when I was an executive in retailing and business, um, I was part of a big store chain and it included some specialty stores and there was a crackerjack outstanding store manager. And this person ran one of these small specialty stores. And then this store manager got promoted to being a director over, let's say it was six or seven of these stores together. And now this person was above those. And one of these grizzled old retailing veterans that I was working with pulled me aside and said, that manager will fail. Mm. Won't, won't make it in that new job. And I was very skeptical and I really wanted that person to succeed. But as it turns out, that grizzled old veteran was right. And the difference was in the new job overseeing other stores, it was a new skill set. And that store manager was so good, but so ingrained in just running a store that that person couldn't make the switch when the person got up to the next level. Uh, really couldn't adapt to having a new skill set to deal with a new situation and ended up having to be demoted and going back to being a store manager. Um, but the thing is, we, we don't want to do that. We want to be able to have that curiosity to become more of a generalist. And I think that's very important as people grow to be better leaders. Well, on that note, I think, uh, I, and I agree, and that was a great story and, and summed it up very, very well. But on that note, I think it'd uh, be a good time to uh, to let our, our listeners know what your definition of leadership is. Now, that's a very good point, Earl. I define leadership as the role of affecting followers to achieve the organizational goals. And I want to stress, and this is really a very basic definition. I mean, I don't think this is anything super duper unusual, but there are a couple of things about it. One of it is that it clearly involves followers. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is an important definition because I make a very big distinction between specialists and leaders. And I think it's a distinction, particularly in business, that organizations need to make more carefully. There are a lot of people out there who are outstanding specialists, and this means they focus on a given body of knowledge, a given set of skills, a given process, and, and that's where they really devote their energies and their attention. And specialists are extraordinarily important and make great, great contributions to society without question. But not every specialist is capable or wants to become a leader because a leader has to get above that specialty and start now dealing with humans. And there are a lot of people who quite honestly don't want to take that burden on of dealing with other people and they want to stay in their specialty and they can do very, very well in that and they can contribute. But I've seen an awful lot of organizations make a mistake, particularly later in a specialist career saying all of a sudden to someone who's been a very good specialist, oh, we're going to make you a leader over these people. And a lot of times that ends up being a disaster. 
That's why one of my recommendations for any organization is make very distinct early on in people's careers and in the jobs and duties you have between people who are going to focus on being specialists and people who are going to be leaders, that is, take on followers to achieve the organizational goals, because that means they have to become more generalist. Yeah. No, again, and, and I love that because, you know, I think back to uh, some of my uh, earlier days in, in my career, I uh, worked for a government organization, uh, very scientifically based, and, and I saw that all the time. These were some brilliant scientists that could, I mean, just spout off equations, do all this brilliance in their head. But if you ask them to explain it to a new hire, they just couldn't. And they, they couldn't pass that knowledge on. And that's where you know, a lot of people say those who can't do teach. <laughs> I kind of flip that around and says those who can't teach do. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, so how how can an organization, and I agree with you, it's critical that they do it as early as possible in somebody's career so they can make the right investments. But how can an organization really make that distinction between the specialist and the leader? Well, I think it, it really, the, the big distinction is the fact that you have people that you must lead. Um, and what I mean by this is you'll have people who are very good specialists. And, and we can even talk about some of the most um, respected professions, which are lawyers and doctors. <laughs> um, to be quite honest, when I deal and I've dealt a lot, I'm, I'm neither a physician nor a lawyer. Um, but I've certainly dealt with them a lot, and I, I will even confess my my own daughter, my own flesh and blood, is a lawyer, so I know something about lawyers. But what what I find interesting among those professions is when people talk about people in their organizations, the biggest compliment they can give is he or she is a great doctor, or he or she is a great lawyer. I very seldom hear them say he or she is a great leader. Mm-hmm because they're very focused on their profession. And the thing is, those professions and specialties are, are very, very important. Now, this does not mean, and, and I don't mean to suggest this role, that being a specialist and leader is necessarily mutually exclusive. But I have noticed that particularly as things get more complex and we have to focus more, it's more and more important to make that distinction and make sure that somebody who wants to take on the job of leading has the has the ego, has the energy, and has the curiosity to go beyond a specialty to do that. Um, and I think it's important for people to make that distinction fairly early in their careers. And that means organizations need to carefully look at the different duties and make these distinctions. Now, this doesn't mean that the senior scientist doesn't have a staff or doesn't have an administrative assistant. But quite honestly, as we've seen in our lives, a lot of times those people will have somebody like an admin assistant who's really good, who takes care of all, taking care of all the people and stuff on the staff so that person can really focus on his or her specialty and, and be happy and, and contribute in that. And that's not the person that you want to suddenly uh, pick up and say, oh, I want to make you the chief operating officer. Um, not, not a good idea to do that. Um, here's the place where I think this is most demonstrated that I think we'll all understand, and that's in sports. 
if you look at the successful coaches or managers in sports, in almost all cases, they were never the best player. Mm -hmm. Um, And there have been some very great players who, and the one that comes to mind right away is Babe Ruth, who desperately wanted to become a manager, and yet nobody would hire him to do that because of his individual behavior, because it was pretty outrageous a lot. Um, and, and in fact, one baseball executive said he can't even lead himself. How could he lead other people? Right. And so, um, I think it's very important, particularly as things get more and more complex and things get more and more automated, that organizations make this distinction between leaders and specialists and start grooming your leaders early because it's the Carnegie Hall factor. Practice, practice, practice. Yeah. Well, no, I like the Babe Ruth, and as you, I mean, it was interesting as you said that you went right to sports because I was thinking about, uh, you know, I grew up in Tennessee and I now live in Indianapolis, so uh, you know, I've been surrounded by Peyton Manning pretty much my entire life, and uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, and he's kind of the flip side of that because he had the emotional intelligence to to realize. You know, somebody asked him if he's if he was ever going to get into coaching, and he kind of said one day, and they said, "Well, you're going to coach quarterbacks." He said, "No," like flat out, no. And they asked him, so, well, why? He goes, because I would be too focused on trying to make that person do what I did, and that doesn't work for everybody. If I was going to be a coach, I might be an offensive coordinator or a head coach. That way I can see the big picture, which I'm also good at. But I would never never coach another quarterback because it would not be good for them. And and I thought that was – I thought it was a great level of insight to have because here's a guy who is one of the best of all time in the position. Right. And and I'm sure people would pay millions of dollars to be coached by Peyton Manning. Right. But he realizes I, I can. That, that's his limitation. And, and I think that's hard for a lot of people to realize is what their limitations really are. No, that's a great insight, Earl. And, and it, it is really a great compliment to Peyton because – in my experience, very few people who are really, really good at especially sometimes can step back and take the, take the broader view. And let's face it, in all of us, um, I know this certainly has happened to me. Uh, when I'm in a fix and stuff, a lot of times I'll come back to, oh, well, what have I learned and what am I really good at? And we have to resist the, the push or the temptation to revert back to our specialty or our base of knowledge when we're in a situation that calls for some broader understanding. But we all like to do that. We like to go back to what we know. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why it's difficult sometimes for really, really, really talented specialists uh, to be able to make the change to be a leader. Yeah. Well, so you you said something in your book. I'm going to kind of segue just a little bit here. We're kind of in the same vein, but talking about natural talent. You said something in your book, and, and maybe I misread it, but I, I wanted to hear this explanation from you. You you, you kind of alluded to the fact that uh, you don't believe that there's uh, any such thing as, as a natural leader. Yes, that's, that's correct. And by that I mean, Earl um, – well, first of all, I, I say that because I've never observed it in my life. Okay. Um, and the reason I say that is the context of leadership, in other words, the situation that you're in as a leader, uh, can always change. Okay. And 
when that context changes, it may change your effectiveness as a leader. Mm. Um, and so you have to be very, very careful. Um, and as a leader, particularly if you're going into a new situation, you have to play, play anthropologist and figure out, okay, you know, what's, what's changed here. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason I say that, that also means for organizations, don't think that you can just, you know, you have the golden boy or the golden gal and, uh, this person can be put in any situation and and they're just going to do the right thing. Um, I don't think that happens. Um, and if I can just tell a real quick story here, and I think it's one that demonstrates this, and I'm talking about one of the greatest leaders of the 20th century, Winston Churchill. Mm Mm-hmm. When you think about Winston Churchill in the 1940s, when it was only the United Kingdom standing up to Nazi Germany, uh, this is before Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, before the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. So it was just the UK uh, versus Nazi Germany, which is just which had just overrun Western Europe. Pretty scary stuff. And Churchill used a fairly new medium called radio, and he touched lots of people. And, and I think even more importantly, he got his cabinet, he got his government uh, behind him and basically stood up to the menace of the Nazis. Absolutely magnificent. But it's very interesting. And I was, I actually heard this story from an observer firsthand from Sir Edgar Williams, uh, a wonderful, wonderful person whom I met when I was at Oxford. Sir Edgar had been the uh, intelligence chief for Field Marshal Montgomery in mm-hmm. the British Army. Sir Edgar told me a story when he observed Churchill at a meeting with the United States Army Chief of Staff, George Catlett Marshall, yeah. in November of 1943. Now, the context had changed. The United States was the senior partner in the alliance. You know, the United Kingdom had done great things, but the United States had more men, more money, more machines, and the United States was going to call the main shots. So here you have a conference where Churchill is and where George C. Marshall has come from the United States. And basically, Marshall is not just representing the United States Army. He's representing Franklin Delano Roosevelt at this meeting. Mm-hmm. And Sir Edgar described how Churchill got up at this meeting and started strutting and getting in the full Churchillian mode, you know, hands in his lapels. And he was saying that, The main thing the Allies had to do, because now we're looking ahead to 1944, was to invade the island of Rhodes. Now, Mm -hmm. you know, Rhodes is an island in the Mediterranean. Now, when you consider the context that the United States is getting ready to invade Europe, is going to do it through Normandy, through D-Day, you know, in, in the next six or seven months. And here's Churchill strutting around saying that they're going to invade Rhodes, which... As George C. Marshall looked up and said, no American is going to die on that goddamned island. <laughs> and, and, and excuse me for the profanity, but I'm quoting Marshall because Marshall almost never swore. Right. And Sir Edgar said that George C. Marshall had a moral power unlike any man he had ever known. And let me tell you, Sir Edgar had known them all. Eisenhower, Montgomery, King George VI, you know, you name it. Patton, Sir Edgar knew them all. But he said that George Marshall had this incredible moral power. And Churchill said that 
And Sir Edgar said that Churchill became a deflated balloon. Just all the air came out and he sat down and he shut up. Mm. Now, I tell that story to say that the context of leadership had changed for Churchill. And he was he could no longer just flamboyantly use a lot of very, you know, extremely expressive language and all that. Um, and he wasn't going to push his own agenda anymore because he was now a junior partner. And so things had changed. And the thing is, if things could change for Winston Churchill, they can change for any of us. And so I think that's why as leaders, we have to be very important and we've got to gauge the context very, very carefully. We can't get promoted into a job and think, well, I'll just do what I just did only on a greater scale. No, you're probably going to be doing something somewhat differently. And, And you better figure out pretty fast what that is. Yeah. Oh, and I love that story. And and for me, it's it's very timely. And uh, first of all, uh, cursing. Don't worry about it. Uh, we've said worse. We'll have said worse in the future. So don't worry about that. Uh, but I, I'm actually, and this is why I think everybody, regardless of their profession, should be a student of history because all of the answers to the past or all the answers to the future lie in the past already. If you know where to look, and I was just reading, um, I don't know if you've heard of this series or not, by Rick Atkinson, uh, The Liberation Trilogy. Oh, yes. No, no. I've, I've actually had the, the pleasure of meeting him. Oh, outstanding. Uh, at, at a book signing and hearing him speak twice. Um, no, he, he's, he's great. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, he, he is. Uh, I love the I love the book, and and I was just reading the story along the same veins of what you just said about how uh, uh, during during uh, an early press conference we're still in uh, in Northern Africa at the time, and uh, Roosevelt made the the statement that the only acceptable outcome for the war will be the unconditional surrender uh, of the Axis powers. And that caught Churchill kind of flat-footed because that mm-hmm. wasn't something that he necessarily agreed to because he thought it would prolong the war needlessly. But it was like, you know, that same thing, kind of like that point was kind of when the U.S. and FDR asserted themselves as we're going to be the shot callers in this thing. And it, it kind of changed the dynamic between FDR and, and Churchill quite a bit. Uh, Yes, it did. And in fact, Churchill, I think, and I think he did this certainly to some extent, and I think he did some of it um, very capably. He had to use more influence mm-hmm. because he had less authority. Right. Well, yeah, and that comes back to kind of where we started with, with the authority, influence, and, and the hierarchy of things. Because, I mean, this is just a great example. I don't necessarily want to get bogged down here, but Again, it's why I love history. That that whole scenario there encompasses everything we've been talking about. I mean, it, when you look at that dynamic between those world leaders on that stage, uh, roles roles changed really, really quickly, didn't they? Yes, they did. And the thing is, you don't have to be the president of the United States or the prime minister of the United Kingdom. Um, I think in any situation that we're in, we have to be very – well, we have to have our antenna out um, and we've got to see, you know, what the context is changing. Um, and I think a good example of this that many of us are going through is when you're a parent, which, by the way, is one of the most important leadership positions of all. Uh, parents are leaders. 
Mm. And parents have to assume that responsibility and take it on. And oh, by the way, that means sometimes you have to use authority, too. Yep. Doesn't mean in a in a bad sense or an abusive sense, but there are times you have to say, because I said so, especially if it's something really urgent, like don't play in the street. Right. Um, and But the thing is, as you watch your children grow, you realize the context is changing. And it's one thing to deal with a two-year-old. It's quite another to deal with an eight-year-old. And oh my golly, it's really different to deal with a teenager. Um, and I, I have two kids and they're now in their 40s. God bless them. Uh, but boy, those teenage years were, were a challenge because <laughs> as a parent, um, you still have some authority for sure, but it's not, it's not like when you're dealing with a two year old or an eight year old. And, uh, you've got to change your skills mix and you've got to change your authority and influence mix. Um, and boy, is it a challenge. <laughs> oh, I, I, I can only imagine that's, uh, <laughs> Well, you know, and, and, and actually, again, uh, that is a great uh, tie-in to, to kind of where I was wanting to go next. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in the book, you, you made a comment, and uh, and I love it because I, I agree. You know, there, there's this uh, saying that, you know, everybody is a leader, but they don't go on to – they don't go on to kind of differentiate. Yes, Everybody is a leader. You just may not be a leader right now in this organization. But as you pointed out, if you have kids, you're a leader at home. If you serve in a church, you're a leader at church. But that doesn't mean that you're a leader right now, right here in this room, in this organization, right? Well, that's true. And there are some people, I mean, for one thing, if, you know, for anybody out there, if if you want to have children, and, and that's a wonderful thing, but children are the greatest risk-reward I think of human experience. You know, it can be wonderful. It can be it can be horrible, on, on a lot of different ways. So you're you're taking a risk when you take on the job of leading your children, but you have to do it. Now you can be doing that at home, or in the home environment as a leader. But your job, you may be a super duper nuclear scientist uh, who is focusing on trying to get photons to split nuclei. Um, and that's your specialty and that's your focus. And you're really not leading anybody in it other than by reputation, which is indirect. Um, so, you know, at work, you're a specialist, but boy, when you go home and you're dealing with your kids, you're a leader. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're right. There are different, there are different situations, different contexts for that. Um, I think the important thing though is we need to recognize when we're in a leadership position. And, and it's important to say, hey, you got to give direction, you got to demonstrate capabilities, and you've got to embody, you've got to embody the character, because it's those values that really connect emotionally with people. And that's what really cements the relationship. Um, but it's, it's constantly in flux, and it's constantly changing. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this question, because it's actually the title of one of your chapters. When does leadership matter the most? Well, I think leadership matters the most, you know, when it really gets distilled into its most important aspect, when there is a serious emergency. Um, And I give examples in my book, you know, I give a very historical one, and then I give a more personal one. The historical one is the Siege of Malta, uh, and I believe the year was 1565. 
where 6,000 knights defended the island of Malta in the Mediterranean from about 40,000 Ottoman Turks. Uh, and uh, Jean Vallette was the leader of the knights uh, who successfully defended the island. And it's, it's an incredible story. Um, and as the accounts say, he was everywhere when the fighting was going on. It was like he was everywhere. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's just amazing. Uh, and he knew what the stakes were. The stakes were the ultimate high stakes. And, um, he, he led incredibly this force and, and prevailed. They saved Malta, uh, from the Ottoman invasion. Um, I contrast that with a story in depression era Kansas where, you know, there's a farm and a farmhouse and the wheat is just being ready to be harvested. And the wheat is the most important crop that year. And a hailstorm comes and destroys the crop. And that takes 10 minutes. Uh, and the father of the family, there's a father, a mother, and two children, a boy and a girl. Uh, and the father basically takes it all in and says to his wife and his two kids, well, you do this. And you do that. Um, and he did that to get them off the horrible tragedy that had just occurred. But he got people doing stuff. Uh, and he said, it'll all be all right. And that's the type of leadership that's very personal. Um, and, and it's very small. I mean, this is just a family. But it's an example of somebody taking on the emotional hurt of whatever the, you know, the situation was. And the key is when things are really going bad, we look up. That's why leaders are so important. When, you know, when things are really desperate, we look up and that's when the leader has to shine. And the leader has to know those situations and has to step up. Now, fortunately, we live in an age where we don't have those things happen very often. And, and we're blessed with that. Uh, it's not like we're, you know, like humans were 10,000 years ago where it was just life was really, really miserable and dangerous all the time. Um, but even in today's situation, for example, if you're a leader in a, in a group and somebody, you know, one of your team members uh, suffers a, a loss, let's say they lose a parent or they lose a spouse, or something like that. This is where the leader has to step in and be there for that person and help that person get through that within the context of the of the job. Um, and certainly when there's physical danger, that's when the leader has to be there and has to set the example of courage. Um, this is why, as you know uh, so well, when you're in the military, um, you you don't lead from behind. <laughs> you got to be there out in front. Um, and, and certainly up to about the rank of lieutenant colonel or colonel um, and all the enlisted ranks, you got to be there. Right. And people are going to be looking for you. Um, and so that's the type of situation. Once again, it takes that acuity for the leader to recognize this is that type of situation and they've got to step up. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. And, and as you were telling that, it, it, it kicked in. This was a personal story 
of mine early in my civilian career, uh, I remember I was in kind of a, a quasi-management position. I I had some supervisory authority, but I didn't do performance reviews and things like that. Mm-hmm. And a member of my team called in, and they had had a death in the family. And I'm on the phone, and, and the shift supervisor heard me say these words, take all the time you need, we'll cover the shifts, we got this, take care of your family. And I hang up the phone. Mm-hmm. And that shift supervisor looked at me and was like, you can't authorize leave for people. That was their response. It wasn't like, mm-hmm. what was wrong? What was, who was that? What was that? It's like, you can't authorize leave for people. And I looked at him and said, look, I give him the employee's name. I said, they just lost a family member. I wasn't going to put them through the, the hassle of telling that story again as to what happened to somebody else. Right. I understand I can't, but we're not going to do anything other than authorize this person's leave. And and they they it, they were more upset over the fact that I had taken care of this person without their stamp of approval than concerned about what this person was going through. Right. And and that just that really man you know that that really chapped my ass for the longest time. And, and no, yeah, I can imagine, Earl. But but you know, obviously, as you know, you did the right thing, and that's also a case of where that other person is enamored with the process. And cannot see beyond the process. Right. And, and, you know, we can't lead like that either because processes are great and they're very important. But when you have a situation which you, you completely recognize where somebody's in a, in a very tough place, that's where the leader has to step in. What, what finally happened with this? Did you finally reconcile it with a supervisor or did they give you grief for the whole time you were there? Yeah, we, we, we spent the better part of the shift talking about it, you know, and, and I apologize for overstepping my bounds in that situation. But I was like, what what were you going to say different? And mm-hmm. that was what it finally came to. I was like, were you going to say anything different than what I said? Uh-huh. Well, no. Well, okay. <laughs> then then <laughs> we, we handled this. We did it. We caused the least amount of pain to the person. We handled it as a team. Can we move on? And then that was finally it. It was like, okay, well, fine. You, you did the right thing. Just run it by me next time. I'm like, you know. And and so, I mean, it worked out good. The supervisor Mm -hmm. and I ended up having a very strong relationship after that because I think they realized, and this is with the upshot of it, they realized that kind of what you just said, that if there was a situation that needed to be handled, I was willing to step up and go ahead and handle it, and I was going to handle it the right way. Right. And and they weren't used to that in the environment we were in. It was very much a, kind of a mother may I type of culture versus get it done like we had to do in the military. Right, right. So it, it was a good it was a good teaching moment all the way around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you know I'm still friends with that supervisor to this day. And uh, so it was a good it was a good moment in the end. Well, no, that's great. And and you know what? I bet the supervisor learned something from it too, which which is great. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Tim, we're we're coming up on fifty minutes here, man. We've we've had a really great conversation, and I think we could probably go for another uh, hour or two. But uh, uh, you know, I, I I I really I really love the book, and and again, I, I really really want people to to go check this book out. It's it's a good read. It's a quick read. Uh, leadership, tough love. Examining leaders through the lens of reality, um, and and 
pick it up. It's on Amazon. I'll have links to it in, in the show notes for, for all my listeners, but highly recommend. It's a good, quick read. Um, you know, what else have you got in the works right now, Tim? Well, um, the main thing I'm doing right now is I'm just trying to build up uh, some speaking engagements to talk about leadership because I do think uh, we in this country, I mean, you know, I'm an American, so I'm going to focus on, uh, you know, the land I love. I think we need to focus on what leadership really is. And I think we can't confuse leadership with just pure influence or celebrity status. Uh, we need to be looking for people who can really lead, who can use both authority and influence, you know, who can help set the direction, who can demonstrate capabilities, and then very importantly, who can connect through the through the values, through character. Um, I think uh, I think we need to step back and take a hard look um, and be more demanding of ourselves as leaders and be more demanding of the people that uh, aspire to be leaders over us. I think that's pretty important. So right now, that's what I'm working on. Well, good, and I'm, I'm hoping this show can uh, can help with that. Uh, I think you got a I think you got a good view of of, of the world, uh, a good view of leadership. I think it's one that's going to be very beneficial to to organizations as you get to work with more and more. Uh, so just keep up that good work. Um, before before we completely close out here. Last question I'd like to ask, is there anything that you'd like to share that we haven't touched on yet? Well, the only thing real quick, Earl, is um, one of the things that I also say in my book, and it's related to your question about the natural leader, um, I also have a cautionary tale about charisma. Mm -hmm. um, charisma is actually from a Greek word meaning a gift, uh, and people who are charismatic seem to be able to get people to do things uh, and completely, uh, they completely shed any skepticism or hesitation. And I, I have, a, and I won't go into it now because it's a pretty long story, but the point I try to make is we really don't want charisma. Um, first of all, it's an overused word. A lot of times we attach it to people that already have a good reputation for what they've already accomplished. Mm -hmm. um, that's not charisma. Charisma is when you can mesmerize people into doing stuff and, and they don't question you. Um, I think for mere mortals like you and me and, and the rest of us, no, we've got to work hard at being leaders. And in fact, we want followers who have a certain degree of autonomy and independence because that makes for better changes and improvements going forward. And so um, my caution is, and this is in my chapter on charisma, charisma, we don't want it. Don't go there. We just have to use hard work to be good leaders. <laughs> no, I love it. And, and there's a lot more uh, like that in the book. I, I don't think we, I mean, I don't know, maybe we discussed 10, 15, 20% of the book, if that, today. So there, there's a lot more uh, in there. So I'm, I'm glad you hit on that, though, because that was an important, that was a piece that really uh, stuck with me, too, the charisma piece. And like you said, we could probably do a whole podcast on just charisma. Uh, <laughs> All right. And and the dangers of it, yes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, Tim, again, thank you for being with us today. Um, before we do the final closeout, for real this time, go ahead and share uh, contact info if people want to get a hold of you. Well, thanks very much, Earl. Yes, let me give you 
um, my email address uh, because I'm actually reworking at this very moment. I'm reworking my website. Um, and so if anybody would want to get a hold of me, please email me at ttloopfer at netbox.com. And that's just how it sounds, N-E-T-B-O-X.com. Um, and that would be the best way to get a hold of me. And, and I, I sure hope people go out and give my book a try because I, I hope the insights can really help people not only be better leaders, but help organizations develop leaders better. Absolutely. And I'll have that in the show notes as well. And and once you get your uh, website up and running, make sure you get back with me and, and I'll add that to show notes too and start pointing people towards that. Will do, Earl. All right. Well, listeners, thank you for uh, staking... Listeners, thank you for sticking with us through this conversation. I hope you got a lot out of it. I know I did. Uh, I'll just take one more opportunity to plug the book. Check it out. It's definitely worth the read, worth the time investment. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns for me, uh, just burden.command at gmail.com. You know the podcast can be found on just about every single podcast platform out there at this point. And thank you for the support and, and feedback on that. Uh, if you have any guest ideas, anything like that, burden.command at gmail.com. Keep up with the ratings and the reviews. It's really uh, having a, a, an impact on the show and helping it spread. And I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid.